Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am Ben Myers. I'm here with Mr. Stephen Cameron. How's it going, sir? Good, Ben. We're back outside. We're back outside. Finally, uh, after a long winter. Yeah, you know, it's it's nice to be outside. I do have some, uh, you know, some shout outs to start off the show because really? I know that, uh, you know, some people have been reaching out to me. I had a, had a developer in the KW area and okay. he said that he loved our banter. He thought our banter was hilarious. <laughs> well, he should uh, write that on a yeah. on a comment on the Apple <laughs> yeah. podcast. Please like and, like and subscribe. <laughs> Please like and subscribe. Five stars. I actually had another developer reach out to me. He is, uh, he is a commercial guy. He's now on the residential side and he says he's learning a lot from our podcast. Ooh. But the funny thing is, is his name is, is Rock. <laughs> and so the entire conversation, I wanted to be like, it doesn't matter what your name is. <laughs> where, 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 what's his last name? Are you going to tell us who the developer from KW was or are these top secret oh, These are secret stuff. Oh, I don't wow. want to, you know, I the don't want to uh, uh, give juice. it away. And uh, probably because Ben's, they actually don't remember. You're probably going to tweet about it anyway. So I'll just <laughs> find it later on, later tonight name. on Twitter. <laughs> well, Ben, for all the for all the uh, complaining about Twitter, you seem more active than ever. Every time I talk to you, like, I'm getting off this stupid app. And, I know. I'm and addicted. then I log on and it's just you ranting about something. I'm, I'm addicted. I just, I can't. I can't <laughs> Help myself, all right. So, what you should do you should delete your personal account, start a burner account. Yeah, nah, yeah, I don't want to be burner guy. Yeah. yeah, that's weak. Speaking of someone that's not weak, <laughs> Tron Under Construction is sponsored by the Plus Group. The Plus Group is comprised of five distinct companies RN Design, SRN Architects, Salesfish Sales Software, Kool Aid Studio, and Uno, Studio Uno ID, offering services in marketing, architecture, interior design, and real estate software. Their mission is simple revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, please visit the Plus Group. CA. Ben, great reading. Thank you, sir. So, Thank you, sir. As you know, I had a, a five month, I had a, a son and he's five months. So I've been, I started reading to him at night. Yes. And uh, every time I read him a book now, I go back to that episode when I said, Ben, you're such a good reader. Where does that come from? And he said, I read a lot of books to my kids. Uh, yeah. But the problem with the, the, the books for the five month olds is there's about three words on the page. So, <laughs> well, so as I read this, uh, our guest intro, bio, <laughs> our guest we, bio. we try to take out the big words and, and, <laughs> and say, Carlos works here. His Carlo favorite book loves is, this. There was a zebra. Great book for kids, by the way. Anyways, <laughs> we do have a, an amazing guest today who hails from the mighty town of Pembroke, Ontario. And I mo know most of you have probably not heard of Pembroke, <laughs> but I'm excited to get into that a little bit with you. It's a town of 13,000 people, and you would not believe that there are two Pembrokeodians in this house right now, <laughs> uh, my house, as my wife was also a... Uh, a native of, of Pembroke, Ontario. What a small world. Anyways, with that, I know we have a, uh, a ground-em and wholesome man here. Uh, Carlos is our guest, and he oversees the day-to-day -day <laughs> operations of capital developments. Is there an S on the end or no? Is it just Carlos? There's not, but I don't <laughs> even do, do notice people, it do anymore. Do people call you Carlos, or is it just... I, I get like called everything get but my actual name greater than 50% of the time. Man, it's it doesn't offend me. Uh, I remember when Bob Lebleski came on the show. I, I could not get the name. I got it now, but it's like six months later. It took me to get it. So, so like six Part months. Part of old. the fun is you Carlo screwing, screwing up all these. <laughs> Bios. Let's keep going. That's part of the fun. 
People look forward to it. Do they? They do. Yeah. Prior to capital developments, Carlo co-led high-rise office development at Oxford Properties Group, where he managed a pipeline of over $5 billion and active construction of over $1 billion. Carlo has been a management consultant for both Boston Consulting Group and the Bain Company. Is it Bain & Company? Maybe. We'll figure that out later. Carlo is an avid traveler, having, having visited over 75 countries, an amateur astronomer, a proud father, and a horror movie enthusiast. Wow. Carlo has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BCom from Queen's School of Business and was top of the grade 11 science class at Bishop Smith Catholic School in Pembroke, Ontario. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Carlo. Thank you. Dude, we got some. We got some inside uh, inside info. On I, there, my wife you know? asked her one thing. She's like, well, she's like, "Well, he was he was so smart in that science class." And I was like, "That's it, all you got?" She's like, "Yeah, I just he was he was destined to be successful." I was like, oh, "High praises." All right. Well, let's let's jump true? into it. Let's jump yeah, Clint Young. Was that the teacher? Clint Young science class. Yeah, you remember? I do. Yeah. Was that what led you to be an astronomer or a, an amateur astronomer, grade eleven science, or was it was there something else that uh, fizzled those roots? No, just there wasn't a whole lot to do in Pembroke, uh, to be honest. There's a lot of stars. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. Not a I wish of... I had a better answer. <laughs> what, like you're, some what, deep-seated what, reason as what to age, why. At what age were you like, I, I, I'm into stars? I always had a telescope. Um, because you always get a telescope as a gift. Someone always gives you one. Yeah. And it's always really hard to use, and it's really terrible. <laughs> uh, but you can use it to look at the moon. And it wasn't until I went to business school that I started to get really into it on a more regular basis. I bought myself a fairly sizable scientific grade cool. Very cool. telescope that, um, and once you get it, it's kind of one of those things where if your equipment is good, it's so much more enjoyable All Right. because A, you get to see it a whole lot more. B, it's way easier because if you have a scientific grade telescope. Uh, most of them now have GPS on them. You hook oh, them really? up to your computer and you just say, I want to look at M51. Put it in and the telescope guides itself to the object in the sky and then tracks it through the sky as wow. the sky, or I guess as the earth rotates. Wow. That's so what's cool. M51? Um, <laughs> Sounds like a plane. Like I a, actually a think missile. Uh, there is a bunch of bands named after these things, but there's a group of objects called the Messier objects, and they're, I guess, I, I don't know what the right term would be, but they're objects in space that were discovered by an astronomer in the early 1900s. He didn't know what they were at the time, and so they just numbered them. I think mm. there's a hundred around 100 of them. So there's wow. like M1, M2, M3. Most of them are galaxies. Some of them are nebulas. Wow. Some of them are just star clusters. Very interesting. So, so I have to ask you, though, um, not many people make it out of Pembroke, Ontario, especially not yeah, to the true. big smoke, let alone uh, an MBA at Harvard. So, so what was yeah, the, like how did you how did you uh did you wake up one day and you said I'm out of here or was it always in the back? My wife said she's she said when I was younger, I would walk around Pembroke and she would feel like I was just never meant to live here. I was never meant to be here. And when she was 18, she moved to Ottawa. And then when she was 20, early 20s, she moved to Toronto. It was just sort of like, it just happened, right? Mm -hmm. like, there's no real 
rhyme or rhythm, but did you have like a moment in time when you're like, I got to get out of here? The town of 13,000 is not much here for me. It was way less planned than I would like to say. Yeah. In fact, my whole education was way less planned than I'd like to say. My dad was an engineer, so my sister went to school at Queens. Therefore, my brother went to school at Queens. Therefore, I went to school at Queens. And I just ended up moving to Toronto because that's where my brother and sister were living. Okay. I'm sure a lot of people have you were way the, more you were the trailblazer is what you're trying to yeah, say. Way more impressive reasons for being and plans as to how they were going to go live their lives and where they were going to go. And it just entirely happenstance. It was much more strategic after that. Yeah. But up until that point, I had no specific strategy to get out of Pembroke. <laughs> um, Did you know that you wanted to? I knew that I wanted to have a career that was bigger than what is possible in a town of 10,000 people. You're fairly limited. Most of Pembroke is public services, services in support of retirement in the private sector, and then a few manufacturing jobs, which much like the rest of rural Ontario have been hollowed out. Right, right. And so, so how, how did you know? You're at Queens. Did you know that you're like wicked smart and you wanted to go to go to Harvard? Wicked smart. You wicked smart, <laughs> you know, like I go to Boston. That also wasn't really planned out at all. Uh, I went, I went to, um, I joined management consulting, uh, Bain & Company in 2006. And not I, the Bain & Company, for the record. A, yeah, so you have to switch that in the <laughs> intro. Um, and that was really about not knowing what I wanted to do and managing options. So when you join a management consulting firm, you get to work for a variety of clients, you get to work in a variety of locations. You don't actually have to make any decisions as to what you want to do with your career. And it's a good launch pad to learn how to be a better professional. So more so than learning how to Uh, perform in any one industry, you learn the tricks of the trade. You learn how to write and communicate effectively. You learn how to present in front of large groups. You learn how to do analysis that doesn't have many defects. You learn how to prioritize whenever you have a variety of different um, competing needs. After two years, I decided that I really did not like the lifestyle associated with it. It's a were very on the hard road? lifestyle. Were you on the road every three months or every three weeks? Or what, what was it that you didn't like about it? Are the long hours? A lot of it on the road. Yeah. But more so than that, the hours. So, you know, 80 hours a week is fairly standard, especially right. at a more junior age. It's right. not quite as bad as investment banking, but... It's up there. It's up there. For sure, yeah. And I really was not interested in it. And the last thing that I was working on was a merger integration at a box factory. And I was going to say, was there a specific sector that you were covering or were you, were you a jack of all trades? I was in private equity. I'd spent right. a lot of time doing diligence work and then post-merger integration work. Right. The private equity work is very intense and the post-merger integration work is very boring. So those two things combined led me to leave. My so, wife, uh, at that time, my girlfriend, was at uh, on international transfer in Singapore. She also worked at Bain. And I said, you know what? 
I'm going to go live with her in Singapore and take some time off. I did that. I went to Hong Kong for Chinese New Year and met someone else who had worked at Bain, a guy named Will Shen, and he was starting up the real estate development arm for Harrah's Entertainment that's now Caesars. Yeah. In Vegas, they own Caesars, Bally's, Paris, Planet Hollywood, a few other properties as well. And he asked me if I wanted to join them for six months. Working out of Hong Kong? or Working out of Hong Kong. That's cool. And that job was pan-Asia. So it was to convince governments around Asia to liberalize their gaming markets and then to insert ourselves into those markets by getting a license to operate within those markets. That was a three-year exercise. It was supposed to be six months, but my <laughs> wife went to business school in Chicago and the market fell out uh, in uh, 2008. Eight, yeah. And at that point, there was simply no capital to build four or five billion dollar integrated resort product. And so I just decided to go to business school. <laughs> and if you're going to go to business school, why not go to Harvard? So obviously, I ended up such a simple, simple <laughs> guys, delineation of knowledge. Yeah. So I sent them a note. Um, <laughs> so uh, the text. Yeah, I, 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 so I ended up, I ended up going to Harvard, and um, my wife got a job in uh, Toronto. I was actually going to go to LA to work in the theme park development group of Disney. Wow. After business school, my wife got a job. Uh, at Kinross Gold here in Toronto. I moved to Toronto and I could not get a job in the real estate sector. No one would hire me. After the Harvard MBA? Yeah. You don't have to sacrifice for talent in Toronto with regards to real estate. And I bring, at that time, several years of casino development work in Asia. Not really a great resume yeah. for going into development work in Toronto. And in fact, the only reason, uh, so I ended up going to Boston Consulting Group. Oh, you did? Okay. That's... And I spent a couple of years there. That was an easy transition because it was a lot like Bain. Bain right. I didn't go back to Bain because at that time, my wife was uh, just leaving Bain, but much more senior. And then I ended up, I got a job at Oxford, which was because Jeff Hess, who was leading the development group at the time, his wife was an ex-management consultant, so he took a risk on me. I actually interviewed for an analyst job there. At Oxford? At Oxford. I uh, got hired as a manager, then got promoted to director three years later, or three months later, sorry. Wow. And then... Um, <laughs> Slight slip of tongue. <laughs> three years difference. later. Oh, sorry, I'm in months. <laughs> yeah. It's a power move. <laughs> Just to make sure you're a bit surprised when I drop it. <laughs> and then stayed there stayed there for five years until I joined the condo world. And so what uh, what made you want to go on the, uh, the residential side? For me, it was largely Todd and Jordan. Okay. And the way in which they approach business with, I think, a unbounded amount of energy, a lot of optimism, and an exceptional degree of integrity, and a strong platform that they had been created, which had been poised for growth. 
I was not looking at all at the time to leave Oxford. And Corn Ferry reached out to me and they were reaching out to me regularly. And I'd always told them, I have no interest in speaking unless you think it's very, very important that I take the meeting. And they said, we think you should meet Todd and Jordan. And I said, okay. And I met with Todd and Jordan and they're just exceptionally charismatic and intelligent people. And I could see an opportunity with them to grow a company in a culture that I thought would be attractive to be part of. And I contrasted that to being part of a great organization like Oxford, but Oxford is a 800 pound gorilla and working my way through that organization and contributing to that growth as opposed to being part of a small team that actually leads that growth. It's awesome. So you were you were recently named the president and I'll, I'll read this list, this quote here from the press release. Carlo is one of the brightest young executives I've ever worked with said Todd Cohen, co-founder and co-CEO of Capital Developments. He is very quick study, applies critical thinking to any problem he has presented, works incredibly well as part of a team, and will no doubt be one of the leading real estate executives in our industry. Yeah, Todd didn't edit that all when I sent it to him. (laughs) (laughs) Verbatim. Yeah. What a guy. Todd, if you can just copy-paste this, put that out there, I'd appreciate it. Came from my grade eleven science teacher. So uh, I was, you know, I was at your office the other day giving a presentation. I'm just wondering if this high praise came from the fact that you came up with the bring your dog to work day. I did Capital not. Developments. Is there a bring your dog to work day at Capital? <laughs> there is not. What? No. We have a social committee which we've launched this year, and I am told that there is a bring your dog to work day on the agenda. <laughs> I'm not opposed to it. It's not sanctioned yet. <laughs> <laughs> See, there, I, I, you're still, you're still, uh, you know, the, going over the options. The what problem, that might not, not to digress, but the problem with bring your dog to work day is you have to include all dogs. Now, this little, our, our fourth guest here, Des, is ten pounds, doesn't bark, very well mannered, like no problem bringing a small dog. Mm. But like, what happens if someone has a Great Dane or like something? No, and the Great Danes are pretty mild mannered too. But like, you know, a Rottweiler, something with long. Hair, mastiff, mastiff, drools, <laughs> you know, like they're like you, it's it's you can't discriminate dogs on the bring your dog to work day. It's a good disaster. Is, is dog discrimination is that is that like, actually, you know what you should say if your dog is allowed in the cabin of an airplane while traveling, you can bring your dog to work. If it's are there constraints on that? I guess oh, yeah. the bigger you are, the you yeah, fly yeah. If, in like the belly. she can come and go underneath the seat in front of us while we take off and land. Yeah, but legally, what? No, legally. <laughs> oh. It's a true story. If you have a big dog in a crate, they have to go underneath. Huh. I think the I think the issue too is some people are, for a variety of reasons, terrified of dogs. Right. I didn't think about that one. That's true. <laughs> and see, that's why they made you president. I was thinking about everything. <laughs> yeah. I uh, and or highly allergic to dogs, so I think the idea needs to be socialized. A little, a a little, little bit more. more. Yeah. So how day-to-day are, are uh, Todd and Jordan, and, and or have they sort of passed the reins to you to, to run the operation on a day-to-day basis? We have different focus areas. I, I would say, and it's is on the sheet there, I run the day-to-day operations of the business. So all of the pipeline work associated with acquisitions, all of the, I don't run the day-to-day development work. That's a new uh, fantastic hire, Jeff Matthews. But 
um, oversee that, contribute to it, help break down roadblocks, manage the corporate functions, yeah. HR, IT, HR accounting. My favorite. And then uh, Todd and Jordan are actively involved in uh, all elements of the business, but mostly uh, capital raising, um, securing new pipeline deals through their very robust uh, networks and providing the types of guidance and decision-making advice that you generate through decades in the business. That's great. It's awesome. So we want to we want to jump into kind of the the day to day. What's happening in the in the I, world I of real estate? I guess the big question is: there's a, there's a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot going on in the development mm. industry right now. I mean, macro economically, we could we could go there, but I mean, just micro economically in terms of what's happening in the city. I mean, between inclusionary zoning, mm. the trades going on strike, interest rates, uh, development charges going up by 50%, parkland, like I could go on, like there, there's a lot going 60. on. What's that? Oh no, sorry, 49. 40, yeah, 49. like what, what are you seeing and how are you feeling about everything right now? Like this, th- I mean, that one question we could talk about for two hours, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nuts. So like from my perspective, I don't know anything anymore. I don't know, I don't know what prices are. I don't know how to write deals. I don't know where costs are going. Yeah. And I don't think anybody does, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I think it's a combination of things. So is it temporary or permanent? I think inflation is temporary and costs as a whole. I don't know that costs will go down. I think they're probably flat. I think growth will slow down substantially as inflation comes down. And I think it's caused by numerous factors. One is demand. And uh, for for labor and for trades in Toronto, which has been, even through the pandemic, very high from the construction side, which was leading to, we'll call it just general trade inflation, where trades had the opportunity to pick one job or another. And as a result, you see more bidding up of prices. I think that there are supply chain issues that were created throughout the pandemic. A lot, especially in in some of the hard materials like steel and wood where the mills were shut down because of the pandemic. And it was a bit of a perfect storm where capacity was cut and demand didn't really come down the way people thought it was going to come down at the start of the pandemic. Everyone thought that demand as a whole was going to stop like it did in the financial crisis, but people were still spending just like they were right. before. It was a completely different type of economic compression. You ended up in a situation where you had supply far under demand. That created supply chain issues and created inflation. And then you've had a whole bunch of monetary policy, which has further exacerbated that inflation. Now, unlike, I think, the inflation of many years past, now you have fairly coordinated global policy with regards to interest rates and fairly active hiking of interest rates. And that's already having an impact on how people are viewing their projects. Yeah. How aggressive they're going to be with starting construction, how aggressive they're going to be with acquisitions, what they're demanding from trades with regards to price certainty they're already baking in the increase in interest rates. So the interest rates are doing what they're supposed to do, which is to temper demand and hopefully stifle inflation. But I think we'll see that over the course of time. 
I think strategically what it's doing is it's calling into question the types of projects that developers go after. I think that buying unzoned land right now is still an interesting proposition because I think that the market will stabilize in the next two to three years. That includes some of the municipal policy changes, which we can also talk about, but those municipal policy changes will be baked into landowners' expectations of pricing. The labor negotiations will be resolved. And then the uh, inflation both on the cost and revenue side, will hopefully stabilize. And you'll see some stabilization of interest rates as well. So unzoned land, to the extent that you can get a good price and you have the vendor willing to price in some of the changes that are coming to the market, like inclusionary zoning, potentially a parkland alternative rate change in development charges, that's a good proposition. Can I ask you a specific question just because I saw you you just put an application in for, I believe it's 66 stories on... <laughs> Sorry, 66 stories on Isabella? <laughs> Two of them. Uh, 62, uh, 65 and a 69. Yeah, so um, uh, it, what's, what's your implied, I don't know if you can tell us this, what's your implied price per foot if you get that density? Because that's an unzoned site. Obviously, you got it in. I assume you were rushing, quote unquote, rushing to get that in before inclusionary zoning September. But I mean, you're well 100% before 100% cannot tell you. <laughs> yeah. I mean... The land price must be public at some level, right? 88 Isabella is public. Yeah. We paid $56 million for 88 Isabella. Yeah. It includes 82 rental replacement units. Right. Yeah. I was going to, I was, I had a question on there that you had a, a $50 million loan on that property. Is, are, are you the person that has to go into RBC and just say, hey, can you cut us a check for $50 million? You have a note that we have a $50 million loan on the property? Yeah, that's what I, I, I read that somewhere. I am not the person who needs to go into RBC <laughs> and just demand the $50 million loan. It's hard. It's, it's far cry from demand from demanding it. It's, uh, it is more, an attractive land basis if we get No, it is. It must be. It. Listen, we were actually, uh, I can't talk too much about it, but um, through our equity division, mm. just acquired a parcel a block away mm-hmm. and um, we underwrote it at 44 stories originally. you're welcome I know and then, <laughs> then we wrote then we underwrote it at, at 47 then 52 and, that, and then you guys came up with that and I was like okay this is changing things quite a bit and our implied land value was good in the beginning mm-hmm. and now I mean I don't I don't even want to jinx it with throwing a number out there but it's under 50 it's per, crazy 50 how normal under, under 70 market. story seems now. I was just about to say that. So <laughs> the dynamic around density and height is changing. Now, those two sites are still tall enough that we got the blog TO treatment as oh, soon I as we submitted the applications. <laughs> Pretty po- But the commentary underneath of the blog TO articles is interesting. And I think it's indicative of the change of the mindset within the market. Okay, go on. Usually whenever it. you read a blog TO article, it is 80% commentary about how it's too dense, there's too much traffic, the condos are destroying the city, when will it ever stop, there's no sunlight, all of the things that as a developer you love to hear. The commentary underneath of each of those was more, wasn't really around that. In fact, most people were just commenting on the design, generally favorable, uh, 
for what that's worth, but a lot less of the hate that you typically get for those types of developments, especially developments that are that tall, tall and yeah. that impactful. And our preliminary conversations with the city, height was not the focus in those conversations. Yeah. I mean, you guys are basically on Young Street, though, right? Or are you on church? We're on, we're east of church. East. There's an interesting oh, policy. Yeah, so there's an right, interesting right. policy which says that the height is supposed to transition down from Sherburn Street to Church Street. And Church has a little bit more of a finer grain. And there was a Manulife Tower, which was recently approved at the OLT for 56 stories, which includes a commercial building on the base. They're over top of it is where they're building which sets kind of the other side of the plane. On the east side, you still have X2 at 50 stories. But if you were to go to market today and you were on Sherburn, you wouldn't develop X2 at 50 stories. So there is a demand for densification, more so than there was before. People are way more comfortable about height. Building buildings of that height is substantially more complicated yeah than yeah. building a 20-story tower you basically build a building do mechanics build another building on top of it essentially right at some level you're almost building two buildings it's a lot more interesting yeah. you have a lot more decisions strategically that you need to make about mid-tower mechanical rooms yeah split elevator banks yeah do you have a slosh tank or two mass dampers to manage the sway at the top are you doing of the parking tower? there or isn't there some? We are not doing much? parking on both. We're not yeah. doing uh, parking on our Collier Park. What's your ratio of parking though up there? Point two. We're our um, more developments that are closer to the subway lines we're doing now. We're doing zero, like I said, at Collier Park. We'll be sub point one at eight L. Is Collier Park the islands, the little islands? Yeah. yeah, I love that site. Yeah, I love that site as well. But Ben, I mean, maybe tune back into the regular program yeah, here. I, mean, I, we, I know that you've got a lot of, we, a lot we, of questions we, here we've got to cover. We, we touched on a little bit development charges going up. And, mm. and I don't know if you go about reading the background studies, but this 49% increase coming off of a couple years mm. ago where we already had an increase. Do you think it's, it's fair? Is it justified that they're raising fees or is just they're trying to, you know, squeeze the stone for more blood? I think there's tactical challenges with it. And I think the approach is incorrect. So on the it's incorrect. Yes. Yeah. On the tactical challenges side, the municipal changes to policy overall and all of these various rates, as much as they impact pricing, what they are going to do is they're going to squeeze supply, which is an issue already in this city. And if I just look at development charges, parkland and inclusionary zoning. And I'll give you a real example we have from a site we were looking up at Young and Steel's low-rise retail site. The IPP value of that site, $10 million. So as an operating retail asset, $10 million. The value of a that's rental fully, fully asset. Fully stabilized, capped yeah. at market caps. Yeah. That's it, just for the listeners who don't know. $20 million as a development site. Great. Yeah. Things are good. Yeah. Now, layer on to that 15% more parkland. So you got $20 million worth of land. You're layering in now 
another 15% to parkland. So your $20 million becomes $17 million. Then you layer in development charges. And the challenge with development charges with rental in particular is that you can't recover any of the escalations right. on rentals. Right. So layer in your development charges on rentals. Now you take off another $4 million from your project economics. So now you're at a $13 million land basis for redevelopment for mid-rise rental, which is something the city wants adjacent to future transit station compared to a $10 million retail asset. That's not super compelling for the landowner, even if the landowner agrees that they should take a cut in their price. Which they never will or which never do. most of them now have not accepted. And so you have a situation where landowners aren't willing to take a cut in their price. And now land, which was previously economically viable for development, even if they agree to take the cut, is more valuable as an in-place asset. And that has happened to us on at least three sites around the city. And what you can do conceptually is to say, all right, well, that's because you're looking at rental. Well, convert it to condo and get another 20% on the land price. You've then got to strip it all out in inclusionary zoning again, because inclusionary zoning applies to condo. So you've now got a situation where land transactions are going to be down because certain landowners aren't willing to bake in the real changes to when, municipal when you say policy. Certain, are, are, is there any that you think will? I mean, unless you're in like a desperate situation, from what I've seen, it's there, there, there's none. Like it's non-existent. They ha- I mean, they there's always been a few f- landowners that say, I want to take this $12 million and I want to give it to my kids now or I want to go yeah, on but a those crazy are, but vacation. Those are, but the more of them I, that, that I work with, I do some work for landowners, they're like, there's only so many properties in this city that are that they're going to be developed. It's worth X as a as a retail asset. I'm happy. The longer I wait, the more it's going to go up in value. Yeah, I mean, that's the. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. <laughs> to them, they're you know, to them, they're, they are right, and that is their mm. justification in their head, and they're they're like yeah. going on. That's their thesis, and, and they, you know, I've argued with some of them, and you're never. It's just like a losing battle, from what I've seen. I mean, maybe you're seeing something. New different. condo prices it's gone this, up for twenty straight years, right? Yeah. So that's a pretty I good thesis. I fully agree with what you're saying. Uh, people aren't willing to bake it in yet. I think that will work out over time. But even once it works out, you've still got the situation where you've got sites which are no longer <laughs> economically viable as development sites. So this policy is going to squeeze supply. And when I say policy, I mean this compendium of policy changes. Do you include inclusionary zoning in that? Because I feel like everything I you're saying... I do include but, inclusionary yeah, zoning Yeah, it's in the that. same thing too, right? Like I don't think any landowner is going to bake in the re- reduction of the value of their site because of some inclusionary zoning policy. Like I've talked to vendors. They, they could care less. Like they're like, that's not my problem. That's their attitude. It'll yeah. l- l- The land prices will be steady and then the revenue will have to go up and up and up to continue to... Yeah. Taking into consideration yeah. all these uh, cost increases, right? I think the approach as well, which was the second question you raised, is a bit odd. And the reason I believe it is odd is that they are placing the entire... Co- now, is 50% reasonable? I don't know. But let's assume 50% is reasonable because the city is exposed to the same inflationary pressures that developers are exposed to. They're placing all of the needs to expand capacity, deal with 
infrastructure challenges in the city on new homeowners. Instead of raising property taxes to spread the burden of city building across all of the people who benefit from the city. And if all of their spending is on incremental infrastructure to service incremental residents to the city, your approach is fine and your approach is fair, although it's antithetic to a growing city. But I don't believe it's that. I believe it's at least in part to make up for the sins of the past <laughs> underinvestment yeah. in the past 20 to 30 years. So I think that it's going to increase the pricing of homes along with all of the other factors that are coming in. And now you have escalating interest rates. None of these things are helping housing affordability. So on the development charge front, I just think it's there should be another revenue tool to help pay for the growth needs of the city. Well, I mean, you've been, you're an avid traveler, 75 countries. That is a lot of countries. So you no doubt have been to the world's greatest cities. And, you know, when I gone to Paris and London and, and you know, you can, you're going somewhere in London, there's like 20 different ways you can get there mm. on the underground. Right. It just makes, it just makes me angry that we have a crappy subway system when we didn't invest in that when it was, it was cheaper. I guess from your travels, what is Toronto missing? from other cities that you've traveled to? Good question. That's an interesting question. Good question. Wow. I would say that Toronto has all the opportunities to be a world city. Certainly we have the population and I think we have a lot of the good tailwinds of things that make a world city. We have great educational systems. We have great diversity. We are an economic hub from a global city perspective we don't have an active waterfront and now i not i know not all cities have active waterfronts but i think the most special ones do london does chicago does new york does hong kong does that's a dumb question what's, yeah. an, what's an active waterfront well let me you oh. know what i used a really vague term and <laughs> which is correct i what is an active waterfront? Maybe I just mean a good waterfront <laughs> that, that is easy to access and as a result has more activity, more commercial activities, more social activities, more cultural activities, more engagement. So the ferry to the island is not active. It's not active. It's hard, I mean, <laughs> it's it's hard to fun. take transit down it's there in the winter. It's just terrible. There's exactly. nothing open. Yeah. No, right? I'm, it's yeah, cold. I'm being a bit facetious, but I'm, I'm, I certainly agree. Yeah, so the, access I mean, to the waterfront, I think, is, is poor. One of the things that makes New York and Hong Kong great is that it is so dense that at any point in the city, you have very active foot traffic. And it's that foot traffic and that density that drives very active street front engagement. Right. That's what drives incredible retail, not only in brand, in quality of execution, in diversity of execution, where you end up with enough people that your downtown core can have three different types of specialty Cambodian restaurants, and all of them are spectacular. All of the major world cities have enough density that they create that. And if you look at Toronto as a whole, it looks a lot denser than it did before, but take a look at it from a axometric view and how much of even the downtown core is not filled in. Right. We're sitting right now 
a five minute walk <laughs> from Young Dundas, sorry, Young Bloor Station. Yeah, 12, 12 minutes. 12 minute walk <laughs> from, from Young Bloor Station, one of the most important transit interchanges in the city, and we're surrounded by single family well, homes. Someone else came on the show and they said the exact same thing, and they referenced Forest Hill, and they said there's nowhere in the world where you can live on like a 75 foot lot by 160 foot mm-hmm. lot and literally be a walking distance to a to a transit to like a major transit hub mm. and a 10 minute drive to your downtown city center like i just think there's no other major city in the world that has such low density close to the to the downtown core so I don't. I mean, I'm, I don't know if that again. That's like a, a hypothesis, maybe not factually backed up, but I do believe mm-hmm. that if you look at Toronto, I think 75% of Toronto or 80% of Toronto mm-hmm. is low rise. Like it's a very yep. undense city in the grand scheme. Of things. If you look at the city from an airplane, okay, if you're yeah, if you're above the. Uh, like sort of above the island, and you're looking north towards yep. the city. Like yeah, you have your sort of like bowling alley of, of yeah. towers, mm. but like other than that, it there's nothing. Yep. There's not much. I, I've gotten into a few speaking on density and low rise neighborhoods. So I've gotten into my share of Reddit arguments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta find these. <laughs> I wish no, I had you them. can't. Don't dox me. <laughs> I've gotten into my share of Reddit arguments on the Toronto subreddit, and. It's very interesting, the the commentary on development of low-rise areas on Reddit. And I I use Reddit as a proxy for the public temperature. And I think to some extent it is, at least the younger demographics. It's a very diverse group of people who are on there. And the commentary you see a lot is the reason that single-family homes are not redeveloped is because the development industry wants to keep the cost of housing high and they do that by limiting land for development. I have never heard a single developer ever argue to retain the low-rise neighborhoods in downtown Toronto. No one wants that. All developers want is a place to build. It would be shocking if developers were so coordinated I know. that they said, we're going to lobby to keep low-rise homes where they are and to avoid putting more high-rises in so that collectively we can maximize profit per square foot on each of our high-rises. Yeah, but high, yeah, I mean, the thing is, <laughs> collusion. Higher, have you ever heard yeah, of that? The yeah. collusion, like the, the because the, prices are higher, doesn't mean that your profit is higher because <laughs> the landowners just increase the, the the price, right? So it's better for you to do five towers than it is to just to do one at two thousand dollars a square feet. You can of four join me. We'll create burner foot. accounts on Reddit. <laughs> Let's do and it. The three of us will go in there. Uh, I'm already hated on. We'll have, so I don't, I don't, we'll I don't have these to, conversations. Yeah. But the the, no, but the what, you're, of, what you're what you're suggesting is that the, that the developers secretly got together and formed, I'm not formed suggesting formed that, an, to a, an allegiance. Yeah, to, it's, it's funny to how, keep debt. Like, listen, we talk about like the low rise neighborhoods off of subway stops all the time. I know we're sitting in one, and they they, they go north and south, east and west. I mean, it'd be interesting, you know, like maybe the developers are the ones who are keeping the 70-year-old nonna in her four-bedroom house. It is, it is, it is funny. by herself. 
There's like, a there's a Yimby group that's called. That's a problem. Uh, I don't even heard of the more neighbors Nimby group, which oh, is yeah. you know they're 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 you know they're trying to get more density and they're just fighting for more housing and uh, it's on a daily basis they get accused of being in the pockets of developers and being funded by developers. No one no one can separate the fact that yeah, we so. need housing and someone needs to provide it and they should get paid for providing it. Right? I mean, I don't I don't understand how that's just a such a foreign concept all right that's, i mean part yeah. of the problem too and this is this is in, in any industry really but you know this this sector is very it's not that it's not rocket science You're, like we're not astronomers that's for sure i mean development is quite simple well, I, grant, <laughs> <laughs> I mean as an industry you know like we're not we're not oh, going to space you might be um but it is com it is so much more complicated than the average joe i'll call him you know, make it out to be like, this, this is not, this is, it's, it's not so much, um, I mean, it's more a bit of an art. It's a bit of a science. There, there's, there's so much that goes into it in terms of city planning, infrastructure costs. Um, you know, you hear a lot of, and you get stuck on these Reddit and they're like, Oh, you know, like, like Ben's good at doing the impersonation of what people on, on Twitter say, these NIMBYs on Twitter say, and you just listen to it and you're like, man, you don't even get, let alone half of it. You don't even get like a quarter of it or a tenth. Mm. Like it, it's. I'm actually working on my impression. Sorry, I'm way off on a tangent. So we have a, we have an election uh, coming up. Two elections actually, municipally and provincially. What's your uh, what are your thoughts? Should Tory get reelected? Should Ford get reelected? And then part two of that question is: If you were elected, forget Tory. I mean, isn't have as much say as as provincial government. If you were if you were given the role as premier tomorrow, what would you do? What would you change, and what would you keep? That is such a broad <laughs> question. If I were given role of premier tomorrow, what would I change, and what would I keep? Would you just quit? Like just Jason, in general, not even real estate related. No, nah, just, just like would you quit like Jason Kenney did yesterday, which I was very shocked by. I don't know if you guys heard about I that. I saw that. I saw that. It's shocking. Well, the Conservative Party in, I think, Alberta has been fractured by the yeah. absorption of some of the Wild Rose yeah. party. Yeah. So the fact that he wasn't overly popular was not... I think he was just fed up. Yeah. It's a tough role. I don't I don't envy any of the, we'll call them, pandemic premiers or leaders in leaders general. Leaders in general. And, and any, and any level in any country in the yes, world. Yes, correct. I think, like, criticizing leaders and the way they handle the pandemic... Mm. It's it's a slippery slope. We were, well, we obviously I had uh, Brad Bradford on the show, and one of the questions that we asked him was, "Why the hell would you ever want to be a politician?" And yeah, <laughs> and he was getting he was getting uh, killed over the weekend, and down, drinking in right. parks and stuff. I, I can see it from a politician's perspective. You know, people drinking in parks, bad things can happen. You get blamed. So I can see how they they wouldn't want it. But, but they <laughs> on the drinking in parks thing, I'd change that. <laughs> I changed drinking in parks as premier. I would just shove it down the municipalities. <laughs> well, like every major city in the world, you can drink. In well, parks. that's my point. Like, like you've ever been to Paris? Like one of the greatest things about Paris is you grab a baguette and a glass of or a couple of glasses and uh, a bottle of wine, and mm -hmm. you go sit in the park and like it's beautiful. Like it's like it's like the parks are beautiful and everyone sits outside. Yeah. It's it's just like it's a different world. We don't have that here. We lack it in a major way. I think one of the great things to come, I, I will get back to your question eventually, but I just want to give a shout out to the city of Toronto. One of the great things to have happened over the past two years is Cafe, Cafe Tio. Tio. Yeah. 
I think it is incredible for the activation of street fronts. It enables restaurants to serve a much broader population than they're than they would otherwise be able to, given the size of their footprint. Um, you don't need to rent a large space to actually cater to a large number of customers. I think it is such a great use of underutilized public space. So kudos to Meritori on that. Active TO, however, I'll take a bit of beef with Active TO. <laughs> Um, <laughs> what is active to you? That was active the closure. They shut down the the gardener. Yeah, and not the gardener. It wasn't the gardener. It was Lakeshore. Lakeshore. Lake yeah, they shut. Sorry, they shut down Lakeshore. So I, I actually I, I did it a few times. I took my bike. It was kind of cool to but ride the bike. There's a lot of places to ride your bike already on Lakeshore, though. I know. Just let me drive my car at some point in the city without interference. <laughs> I, I would love to. I can't wait to ask you about bike lanes. <laughs> active. So active TO. Well, let me tell you a story about active TO. So okay. my wife always says to me, she's like, why are you in blog TO again? Because she always reads blog TO. I always read blog TO. I love blog TO. But I end up in there sometimes for things unrelated to the real estate industry. Like what? I've just been quoted several times about things. Like? Um, one time, how do you a, get quoted about random things? So active to, to. So I was on my way home from my parents' house. They live in Waterdown, and I was like, my daughter's in the back seat. She's kind of sick. She's, Wait, your parents left Pembroke. Yeah, moved wow. to Waterdown. Yeah, wow, that's a big move. It's a big move. Yeah, yeah. small town, close to the city. All the kids are here. Makes sense. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Keep going. Um, okay, sick daughter in the back. <laughs> sick daughter, yeah, sick daughter in the back, and I get to downtown, and like. The traffic is just backed up forever because of active TO. Lakeshore is closed. The gardener's got traffic for days. And then we finally get to Lakeshore. Not a single bike on Lakeshore because it's pouring rain. <laughs> and so I decide I'm going to get on my high horse when I get home. And <laughs> we'll go on Reddit. And we're going Twitter. And like I have like four tweets on my Twitter account. I usually just use it to complain, like most people on Twitter. Yeah, 75% of but tweets are complaining. I was really angry. And so I get home and I tweet Meritori about active TO. And like my name's, my name is on my, no, my name's not on my Twitter. It's like some incarnation of my name. So I'm like, Meritori's never going to know it's me. And he's never going to read this anyways. No one's going to care. I'm just going to express my anger. And then, like four days later, I go on blog to, and it's it's like some people are very unimpressed with active to, <laughs> and it's like a screenshot with a link to my Twitter, and then I open up my Twitter, and there's all these tweets that are like, oh, "That's good," you know, "Fuck you," "I can't believe you," "You're not a member of the city," "Oh, too bad that you have the." benefit of owning a car oh and blah 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 and like i just got Ugh. brigaded over this tweet about active to so i'm not a fan of active to <laughs> um but i am a fan of cafe to active, active to the the <laughs> when it worked at its at its prime when the city was actually shut down and there was nowhere to go and no one was mm. really going anywhere, I think made a lot of sense. Yeah. But a lot but, of these but, but so but so did bike lanes when there was no one on the road. But a lot of these streets they were just used for parking. All right. So Yeah. You I know, mean, so I, I think it was great. I would go down to College Street and go 
grab something to eat or go to Ossington mm. and sit on those patios. I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. But yeah, yeah, I go on Twitter just just to argue. Sometimes I just take the opposite point of other people just to you. Just, yeah, no, that's yeah. just, that's just a troll. Yeah, I troll. just I troll people. <laughs> I yeah, troll. I do. So if you I, were... I was defending one of your projects though because one person was complaining like why do they why does everything have to be redeveloped with condos? Why can't some of these old rental buildings stay? I'm like it looks like a 1970s slab piece of crap, right? Like nice. Do you use like, that language? I, I might have. I, he blocked me. So, uh. <laughs> but he's a, he, the guy was a, on Sirius Radio, so maybe he's gonna maybe he's gonna talk about it on. Uh, okay, Sirius so going back. Radio. So if you're a Tory, <laughs> you'd keep Cafe Tio. We'd get rid of Active Tio. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Premier, would you just shove development down the city's throats, or or would you? keep the process as it is like i mean 12 stories everywhere i don't know i mean I, th- I think everywhere. if i was premier i mean talking about intensification or densification i mean ha- having these these counselors who manage their wards have some sort of say in the process to me is the most bonkers program i've ever heard it just doesn't mm-hmm. work you know especially when you have one counselor on the east side of the street and a different on the west who have totally different fundamental views on policy and and city planning um, that, well, that's what that's something I would do, but I mean, I'm, the question's for you, not me. <laughs> well, I would do two. I would do two things. First of all, I would recraft inclusionary zoning, and I think that there is value in inclusionary zoning. I think that the way in which they're executing it is odd, and the reason it's odd is twofold. One is I don't think that it actually maximizes the amount of affordable housing, because all things equal. Rather than doing 7% of a Yorkville tower as affordable housing, I could take that same cash equivalent and go purchase two times as many affordable housing units in the junction. Um, and it does, and that can be easily spread and sprinkled around the city of Toronto, which I understand is an objective of a successful mm-hmm. um, affordable housing program is not to have specific areas that are uniquely affordable housing. I think the other issue is that it doesn't actually deliver affordable housing now. It delivers affordable housing in seven years, but we have a housing crisis now. So you're already doing land appraisals for the purpose of community benefits contributions and parkland allocation. And I don't understand, and I'll, I will caveat this by saying perhaps there is a very good reason for why they didn't do this, why they didn't just do it as a fee, as a percentage of land value. Isn't do it as a 10% yeah. fee, whatever the equivalent economic impact is. They have the studies, whether or not you believe them or not, behind them. Use the same economic impact. Do it as a percentage of land value. Take that money put a sunset date on spending it and deploy it immediately by buying market condos in an evenly distributed way across the city. And instead of ending up with affordable housing in a long period of time, you'll end up with more affordable housing now. So I would do that. Um, I think I would also, and to the Premier's credit, he is doing this, push density supportive official plans. I do think that councillors should have a say and the community should have a say in the developments which impact them in a material way. Um, 
I think that the issue is that there is such a high disconnect between what is reasonable and appropriate under the current zoning and official plans versus, sorry, what is reasonable appropriate versus what is in the current official plans and zoning. And that's why there's a huge disconnect between the development community, the city, and the local municipality. I think my, my comment was I went to a, you know, pre-application meeting and the counselor, you know, it was, it was identified by everyone in the community really as a high rise site. But, Hmm. you know, he's like, you know, I'm here to represent my local constituents and I want nothing. So I think like there's such, like there's such a large gap that makes it's all, it's just unreasonable. And it's that, I guess that's what I was referring to more as, as you know, like he's like, well, you could put, you know, 20 townhouses here and the application ended up going for two 44 story towers or a 44 and a 46 story tower. Like, like that's such a large gap of, of what's reality versus, you know. Don't, I guess the, the one question I have, and this is rogue pontification. So, yes. <laughs> is that an issue with the counselors or is it an issue with the real estate industry and our messaging because we don't have many of these yes in my backyard groups and so the very vocal um i think you have a lot of people who are very vocal that they don't want development and then you have a lot of people who are just completely neutral don't show up to public meetings, don't care if there's a tower or not. And so if you're a counselor and your objectives are to respond to the votes of your, or voices of your constituents, I think more often than not, the voices of your constituents are a very vocal minority. Small minority, right. And then people who are generally indifferent. There's not many but, people who now, which was to my previous yeah. comment, now there are more people who are saying, you know what, actually we do need supply. This is kind of a big issue. Yeah. There's been a couple of counselors though on some of these online meetings that have actually accused some of the Yimbies that have gone mm-hmm. on to these uh, um, uh, forums to lend their support of them being developer plants. Right? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so this you is know, still not negotiating in good faith. seen those posters that have gone up where it's like a high-rise tower like stepping on a small house <laughs> small house yeah. and it's like don't let development destroy our yeah. neighborhood there's some creative well, nimbies out there one, one thing i would just go back you made a really good point and and this just sort of bring everything sort of full full circle in the conversation here is um the messaging is really important and i think yourself as a world traveler who's been to a lot of these great um major cities can speak to it and i and i think Ben and I talk a lot about um, Bloor Street and Bloor East and Bloor West and the Danforth and how you have like, you know, two subway lines basically and such low intensification, you know, off those major, call them major transit hubs, which we don't have many of. Mm -hmm. And, but, but I used to live off the Danforth and I, I know people live off of, you know, Bloor West and part of the problem with those neighborhoods Mm -hmm is that the retail is is very average very below average mm-hmm. and and the problem is there's not the there's no foot traffic to mm-hmm. to make you know the, the retail incredible yeah there's just not enough people there's a lot of vacancies there's you know there's always like little shitty little pot stores or pot shops mm-hmm. that show up the, the good restaurants struggle to make it the, the really good ones make it the you know the average ones just can't handle it and yep. it's simply because there is no density to support that uh 
to, to really build like a small little community, right? Like the, the, the intersection of Maine and Danforth is sort of starting to become it, but mm-hmm. it's taken so long. And even if you look at Broadview and Danforth, you know, in my opinion, it's just like, it's so underutilized. And if, if you, if the messaging yeah. from the developer was not like, Oh, we're putting up towers to ruin your community. It's like, we're putting up towers to bring people so we can support like mm-hmm. unbelievable programming, which is going to make this one of the most desirable places to live yeah. in the world, let alone the city, let alone Canada. Like I just, you know, maybe it is a messaging yeah. thing that we've totally screwed up because we, you know, everyone's like, oh, dr- developers make a lot of money and drive around Yorkville and Ferraris. Well, there's <laughs> a pl- there's a planning issue there too, which is the planning policy around a lot of. Although there is a new study on um, Danforth, Danforth, yeah. there is a, there is a new planning study on Danforth. There is a planning error in the process, which is that it wasn't economically minded when they came up with a lot of the avenue studies and a lot of the planning policy is about lining all of the avenues with mid-rise well in the good areas of the city it's not economically viable to build a mid-rise along an avenue or along bloor street you can't knock out annex retail that's generating $60 a foot and replace it with an eight-story tower. The in-place value of the asset is substantially more than what the development would be. So if you actually want to develop along major corridors, you have to along density because you're taking an operating business out of commission. Right. But the eight-story thing is just stupid to me, too. For It's stupid for the community in some ways, and it's also... There's not a lot of developers who do it well, and those who are like the, the the mid market developers, like it's an easy way to lose your shirt because it's the profit margin. They're not the profit ultimate dollar amount isn't as large, and 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 I fundamentally believe in mid rise. You're one small mistake away from like eroding all your profit entirely, and profits in small number of units, right? And it's, it's it's just it, they're tough to make money on. They really are. Like it's it's not a lot of people want to build eight stories. Actually, hardly anyone wants to build eight stories who who really is a significant experienced sophisticated developer in the city. Like I don't I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. <laughs> I think that I I, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. Midrise is interesting because in some respects what you should be able to benefit from is Speed, which you don't get a benefit for. You don't get a benefit from because they make you wedding cake your mid-rise, so you yeah. have a whole bunch of atypical yeah. units. But in and, theory, and, you and, but be the other thing too is like speed. for eight stories, you're still going through this. You, theoretically, you're not, but it's seemingly you are going through the same zoning process. I mean, it's still two two years, two and a half years for guys to get zoning on a. Often on a, it's worse because it's in a neighborhood where people are more know. angry about it than, mean, than a downtown what tower, city, right? Anyway, it's, you were saying something. Like, like, oh, well, I was saying you should also benefit from efficiency. Yeah. You have a big bomber floor plate with fewer elevators, um, more efficient hallways, less glazing around more interior area. So there should be some cost benefits to mid-rise as well. But then you also get trades who don't want to work. Yeah, that too. On I, I hear the mid-rises are less efficient than a, than a tower, though. In what respect? Just in terms of the the saleable space to to total oh, your, GFA, your efficiency ratio. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't build towers, so. But let's. Let, I, 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 did, I, have an inter- I did have a question for you though, because mm. we we were discussing this the other day, and and when we were on a Zoom about 
the average uh, end selling price of a new condo that will mm-hmm. launch in 2018 is higher than in 2022. So it's just un- that's like a stat that I never would Say have thought. Again, so sir? the average end selling price of a condo that was launched in 2018 is higher than in 2022. Which is like you're like what? This doesn't make any sense. But yeah, because there's the average units. price, the average unit size has gone from like eight fifty yeah. to like six fifty, yeah. right? And yeah. and we're getting to the point where where we've min- the absolute minimum unit size is per bedroom type, right? And now we're seeing projects launch with forty percent studios. And the studios mm-hmm. before used to be three hundred fifty square feet. Now they're three hundred twenty square feet, right? So um, where does the industry go from here to, to appease, you know, the investor? Are we, is there any worry that we're just, you know, building adult dorms here or, or, you know, is that something that you're concerned about that we're, you know, we're not building any family sized units or units that people can grow into? I have many concerns wrapped up in what you just (laughs) said. Um, one thing that I think is, is hypothesis the fact that the end you price hasn't changed at all is interesting to me because I think that there's probably something in there that suggests that wages haven't really grown that much, underlying wages. Um, in terms of units getting smaller and smaller, um, that's actually another advantage of having density in some respects because you don't need to spend a lot of time in your home if there's a variety of super active things to do at the street level directly below you. Yeah. Um, I lived in a two-bedroom, 500-square-foot apartment in Hong Kong for three years, and I never spent any time actually in my apartment, and I never felt like it was an insufficient amount of space. Where I think it ultimately ends up going, or at least it will head in that direction, is that so far, Toronto as a whole has been a little bit sheltered from the whole roommate thing. Um, And what I mean by that is I know people have roommates, but you go to a city like Manhattan and there are whole message boards and communities based around just finding as many people as possible to live with. And so um, I, it's interesting. Like I've been in way, many more like four and three bedroom apartments in Manhattan than I have been in Toronto. And I wonder if there's another way to, to skin the cat with the investor, which is to say, look, instead it's actually a smart move to buy a really big unit or not a big unit, but to buy a thousand square foot, four bedroom, four bedroom, (laughs) still small, (laughs) thousand square foot, four bedroom unit, because that's actually the path to affordability where you have flattened wages is share all of your common facilities, your washrooms, your living room, your kitchen among more bedrooms. That's generally the premise of co-living, which has been... I've done uh, a bunch of studies on those already. Yeah. And um, so it's generally the premise with co-living. And so I wonder if there's actually a white space in in the market that is that, that is a smart move for investors that, you know, increases the headline price, but decreases basically the rent per tenant. 
and creates an un, or meets an unmet demand in the market. Do I want to be the first developer to try that out? Absolutely not. <laughs> Would I be interested in seeing a social, seeing an experiment that tried that out? Absolutely, I would. Conceptually, it makes sense uh, to me. Uh, there's a group called uh, Rhina, and they just uh, uh, struck a partnership with uh, Fitzrovia. Mm. And essentially, what they do is it's it's a it's a mostly female group, mm -hmm. but they match up two uh, two females that want to be roommates yeah. and take away the burden of if this person leaves, then you're on the hook for the entire apartment. They say, okay, we'll cover that cost if that person wants to leave, and we'll find you a new roommate to bring that's in very someone smart. that's that's like minded. That you have mm -hmm. similar, you know. Uh, um, you know, uh, you know what's interesting with. about that is I was with a, I had a lunch on Monday with someone in the co-living space and they were telling me that the people who are into co-living don't care about that. So like male, female personality type, they said that a lot of the co-living that, that you'd think they'd, they'd match your personality based on, you know, astronomer, athlete, whatever. No, it's like they want to live with anyone and anyone who shows up. I was, and I thought that was very odd. I, I, I don't was know. They seem to be spending that. a lot of money on AI uh, I, to try to figure out. How I think to, that's yeah, different. I think that's people. different though, because what you're talking about is roommate matching, and you're talking about co-living. Right. So co-living, I think, is like a dorm, right? Essentially, like you yeah. share a kitchen. Yeah. But roommate matching is different because roommate matching is, I can't afford a two bed. I can't afford a you know a one bedroom apartment in downtown Toronto, so I need a two bedroom or a three bedroom. I don't have any people here I want to live with, and I don't want to live with weirdos, and I don't want to be on the hook for my rent in case one of my roommates flakes and I never see them again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a it's a very useful app, right? When you look at the cost of you know mm -hmm. a three bedroom unit, maybe. Uh, you know, $3,500 a month, right? So mm -hmm. each uh, each tenant's paying a little bit over 1000 where if you wanted a one-bedroom, it's going to cost you yeah, 2200 yeah. bucks. See, for 2, someone 000. like Fitzrovia, they would be well-suited to try, like, the four-bedroom concept. Concept, yeah. because you only need to, like, try it in one building. You only need to get a very small percentage of the total market. Yeah, Um I have to believe, for instance, that there's 400 people or 100 apartments worth of, um, you know, 100 apartments worth of the other interesting people thing who about would want to live in that environment. The other interesting thing about that thesis is when you build a larger unit, okay, so you have four or five bedrooms, assuming you're going to give everyone their own bathroom, that's one thing, but you're only building one kitchen. So you might have 12 or 1,500 square feet with one kitchen. The reason why construction costs are expensive per foot is because you're putting a kitchen, a bathroom, a bunch of walls, mechanical in a small area of space. I was looking at some some units, some rental units in London, and the cost per foot was extremely low in comparison to Toronto. And part of it is because there's, there's less, you know, the, the sites aren't as tight and there's not as much closures and underpinning and tiebacks, but you got a, you got a one bed, 1200 square foot unit. There's a lot of open space that you're not yeah. building. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting too, you know, like they're caught, it could be an efficient way to 
And I, I've gotten over that with the, with the guys in your office, right? Where I recommend studios, and they're like, "Oh, well, let's let's just run that now. Let's look at the revenue that I'm getting more for the studios versus okay, I got to build an extra this many kitchens. Okay, development charges of this and that, right? And that's why you're starting to see the studio price per square foot like get so much higher than like one bed, yeah, right? Of course, it so, is. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. But are we are we getting then close we to are, our? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're well, way, way well over well, our our yeah. hour allocation. So yeah. we usually we usually have this. Um, uh, rapid fire uh, section at the end, and it's usually you know less than less than ten second responses, and uh, we just fire them at you. And so right. yeah, no long winded responses. You can go, uh, feel free to go yes, no. Uh, we get a few passes, but uh, but yeah. Steve, you want to take the first one? Um, we kind of we kind of asked. Going, that I'm one. starting with number two. Okay, because we already if, asked that if, one. If you were Elon Musk, would you buy Twitter? Pass. No, not pass. Sorry. I'd pass on buying it. Oh, you pass on buying it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Will we see the capital gains exemption for principal residences be removed in your lifetime in Canada? No. Steve? Who wrote these? You like, I can ask this one. This is a great question. Seeing as that you are an amateur astronomer, (laughs) is it true that men are from Mars and women are from Venus? <laughs> yes. <laughs> See, that's, that's a great question. Um, do you have a favorite architect? Do I have a favorite architect? Yes. Uh, I really like Zaha Hadid. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Why isn't granite popular anymore? Too busy. Too busy? Oh, okay. We're going for we're we're Moving down. Uh, actually, what, that was a legit question. I was thinking, like, why isn't anyone doing granite like, anymore? Should I put a granite countertop? I've been arguing. <laughs> yeah. Is it popular? It's not popular? No, man. Actually, I'm getting rid of my granite countertop, to be honest with you. What are you, what are you replacing with? Quartz? Uh, quartz, yeah. Yeah. yeah doing also, does, also stains less. Like, it, I mean, granite's pretty good, but like Caesar stone and quartz yeah, yeah. stainless. But everyone's doing the, like, we're going to do is mostly white. And I'm like worried that I'm like, ah, you see all the crumbs and everything on there with the granite. It kind of hides <laughs> when it's dirty. Right. It's gross. It's like a, <laughs> it's like when you go to an old hotel and it's got the floral bed cover. <laughs> I want my bed cover to be white. <laughs> yeah. That's it. <laughs> I agree. Okay. Is, is it me now? Yes, sir. Okay. I know that you're a horror movie fan, so if you were forced to watch one of these two movie marathons, would you rather watch the Chucky movies or the Saw movies? Saw. Did you watch the new Scream movie? I have not watched the new Scream movie. Will you? Um, but it's in my. It's on your list. It's on my. It's in my queue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I they, think they brought everyone like Nev Campbell's in it and Jennifer LaFue, I think, is in it. David Arquette, David, yeah, they got all like they're all like the parents, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Funny. I saw the trailer, and I was just, yeah. you know, it's interesting. The Scream franchise is one of the only teen slasher franchises to come out in like the 90s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was potentially good. the only. I know what you did last summer came out in the nineties oh, yeah. as well. That was a smaller franchise, but that was really it. Yeah. And then the twenty knots was like the Saw franchise was the big franchise and the Conjuring franchises. Anyways, I don't know nothing about. It. I'm not a horror movie guy at all. <laughs> yeah. more of a, I like the Saw yeah, movies. More of a comedy guy. <laughs> You know, <laughs> my buddy is in. To digress, my buddy is in Cannes right now at the film festival. He said that the he went to um, Top Gun. He said he got a six minute standing ovation. He said it wow. was unbelievable. He said it was the best movie he's ever seen. 
Oh, I thought you were going to say there was a French horror movie that also got like a five-minute <laughs> standing ovation. It was a zombie flick. Uh, you're programming your common areas and have some square footage left. Which amenity space would you choose? Yoga studio, video game room, or co-ed saunas? Fair, fair question. Me or personally, other, or well, I guess it's just an open question, right? Video game room. Video game room. Okay, that's all right. All right. Are video games still cool? Are for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I play a ton of video games. Really? Yeah. What do you play on the computer or like on I play a, a console? Lot of, I play a lot of console. I play a lot of survival horror. <laughs> like on PlayStation games. or Xbox or I what? Have a PS5. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, I, it's, do, it's do you let brainless. your kids play? No, not at all. No, honestly, it's how I de stress. I'm a lot like the guy from House of Cards. The president, I guess. Yeah. Um, I just, whenever I have a stressful day, I just tune out. And some other people will watch TV or watch Netflix or watch YouTube. I shoot things <laughs> cool. in video game form. All right. This is this goes back to your previous job. Does Toronto need a casino? Yes. Can you elaborate? I'd love to hear your... your no, seriously. <laughs> You're screwing up the rapid fire. I know. I don't care. It's so It's such a good question. So... Let me tell you. Let me tell you a few things about casinos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, here's my view on casinos and what they can do. So, a good casino is a large economic multiplier. It increases length of stay. It increases spend per visit. It induces visitation, and it contains a variety of non-gaming amenities. All of those things are very good for your economy, and that's the multiplier effect. Directly, it also creates a massive amount of tax revenue from gaming taxes. A casino in downtown Toronto would substantially increase and create a new tax base that could be used to fund a whole bunch of the infrastructure needs. You wanna take care of the Gardner Expressway? build a casino like you want to fund affordable housing build a casino the challenge with building a casino is you need a certain environment to do it one is it needs to be of scale you can't have a subscale casino because if it's subscale it doesn't generate enough revenue to justify the non-gaming amenities to induce more tourism and if you're not inducing tourism then it just becomes a locals tax and it's completely ineffective you need to have only one or two casinos so that they can be built to sufficient scale so that, again, you can have world-class amenities and that the benefits of the gaming revenues aren't spread among multiple operators. And you need it to be done by a private operator and not the province so that when there's appropriate capital improvements that need to be done, you're not debating between investing in healthcare or investing in Casino Niagara. So I think we do need it from a revenue perspective. And the counter arguments are always the same as a side note, which is it's a locals tax, which I just described. I don't believe that. Problem gambling. Now, an interesting thing about problem gambling is I do not deny at all that if you had a casino, there would be people with gambling problems at the casino, 100%. But what I would say is that if you look at studies of places with casinos, without casinos, the incidence rate of problem gambling is not any different in the areas with casinos or without casinos. 
Um, casinos have no real if, effect if you've got on an addiction the, to gambling. You're going to find yeah. it now. We can single game bet in sports. All right. So it's a. I'm not saying it's not a problem, but I. But it. But it's. But it's addressable. But and then the last what, what, one is crime. Yeah. Were you going to say crime, yeah. or you just wanted to move on? No, I was going to say crime. crime. Yeah, casinos are generally organized crime. I feel like is is a bit the biggest concern. Oh, so money laundering is a concern. I would say that there are casinos that there are people who launder money through casinos. I think uh, I think most major operators are so heavily regulated that it's extremely difficult to do that. In the topic of inducing crime and having people around the building petty crime and violent crime. For the most part, casinos are built in areas that need economic multipliers. And so you see ca casinos built in Detroit, Windsor. No one wants a casino in their neighborhood. They build a casino because it's a necessity. So there's a little bit of a mix between causality and correlation of a casino. The revitalization of CNE is, I think... I think the province needs to sell it. I think it needs yeah. to go to the public sector. And a I, casino in Ontario place. I, I, honestly, I think I think that's perfect. the place to do it. It's 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 in the mix, but it's also not in like a neighborhood, so you're not going to piss everybody off. But that 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 area and talking about revitalizing the waterfront. I mean, what better place to start? Anyway, well, now I think there's a giant. What's going in where? Well, they did the big RFP, and now it's like oh, a giant Ontario spa. Place. Ontario yeah, place. Yeah. Cut that part That's out. what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking CNA, about. Yeah, it's all the same. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, but the, I'm thinking of Ontario Place proper. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that's where it should go. I mean, yeah. all it needs to be. Yeah, or the Metro Toronto Convention Center, which was the original. Yeah, the problem with plan. the Metro Toronto Convention Center, in my opinion, it's it's like right in, it's too much in the mix. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, well, you need, it, the thing is you need a new convention center. And so... Convention centers and casinos are perfect soulmates because all of the people who are at conventions, if you run conventions well, are out of towners. Yeah. And so it's completely incremental spend right. of those people within the casino. Yeah. That's why sense. Vegas is so brilliant. The convention market is bright in Vegas is brilliant. You come, you spend six days to go to like a pediatrics conference, you walk to and through the casinos. Um, and your company's paying for you to be there. And your company's paying for you to be there. And it's all incremental revenue. Let's put it on the server. waterfront. Let's revital. Let's get yeah. that waterfront going. A little casino. I think, Carlo, I think Carlos should lead the revitalization of yeah. the waterfront. And I, bring I the NFL team. Oh, to that's the, one of the reasons <laughs> I ended up in BlogTO as well, because I had written an article at some point for Toronto Life like 10 years ago about the rationale for casinos oh yeah and then i ended up in blog tea on their life well. <laughs> <laughs> well listen this has been a absolutely engaging conversation it's nice to meet you uh thanks great great pembrokonian or whatever you call yourself uh <laughs> we do call ourselves eh? great roots and um you're doing great things so congrats and, and thanks for taking the time great, to do thank this you. And, uh, and i guess if people ben? want to uh to look you up what's uh where, where do they find you other than you know you already said you're on reddit you're on twitter don't find you're... me on reddit <laughs> <laughs> don't look for me <laughs> don't try to find me <laughs> i'm actually no i'm i'm not on i'm not on twitter except for the four tweets just email me or call me that's awesome. It's awesome. I'm sure your, your email's on the company website. Yeah. Capitaldevelopments.com. Yeah. That's right. Awesome. Final words? I have none. <laughs>
<laughs> ben always does that to me. I put you on the spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, Steve, final, final words. words. Final I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be the guy with the final words or the guy who sits at the head of a table. Anyways, thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks, guys.